0: The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv wellbeing.
1: First two introductions right this moment are, um, are David Shaw, who's a philanthropist. He's a businessman. He's a social entrepreneur. He also was the treasurer of the most advanced, for the the largest organization uh, for the advancement of science. Last week he was in Hawaii with President Obama talking about how science can help us in the direction of a more uh, stable, sustainable world. And uh, with him is his personal physician, uh, Jonathan Rosend, who... Um, who is a neurologist and vice-chair of neurology, professor of neurology at Harvard and Mass General, mm-hmm. moderated by a, a very well-known moderator, Richard Sergey, who was on ABC News as a producer and moderator for many years and also very close to some of the great uh, names we know in in broadcasting. And he... Has uh, been a consultant to our foundation as well. And I can say uh, he's an amazing moderator.
2: So, for the next uh, 25 to 30 minutes, we, I think, will have an extraordinary glimpse into health and wellness. Uh, we have um, a patient. We have a physician. We have a healer. We have someone who is still healing. And it's a story as much about medicine and science as it is about love and compassion. So um, I'd like to start with you, David, to just give us a little glimpse of uh, the early journey
3: of what you went through. Thank you. Happy to do that. First, a lot of us have been comparing notes uh, at this meeting about whether you're a sage or a scientist. <laughs> and I won't ask people to raise hands, but in this panel, I, I, just so that I feel like I fit in, I, I hope we could say sages, scientists, and survivors. And, and I'm in the survivor category. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to share a, a difficult personal uh, story with you that I, th- I hope that sharing... Uh, can benefit others. Uh, in five years ago in July of 2011, in the middle of the night, I suffered a, a sudden onslaught of really horrific uh, pain in my head, a, a terrible headache, numbness of my hands, was almost unmanageable pain. And so I was hospitalized and, and diagnosed uh, with a rare and somewhat lethal viral infection in my brain. It's known as viral encephalitis. We'll talk more about that later, but uh, so it was quickly realized that it was a rather dire situation, and I was in a race against time uh, to save my life. So I was transferred to Massachusetts General Hospital, came under the care of Doctor Rose and, and his colleagues, uh, and and my brain was becoming increasingly uh, incapacitated as, as as the days went on, uh, with horrific pain. Several months later, uh, after I emerged from, from sort of the fog of the, those early days, I was faced with many uh, challenges, and, and Dr. Roseanne will talk about that. But my right frontal lobe was very damaged, and I had virtually no short-term memory and, and uh, difficulty with uh, spatial, visual-spatial recognition. Uh, I had had uh, some cardiac issues. I, I had my, the, my sense of taste and smell was was really really severely disrupted i 'd lost some sight in my right eye. Uh, I had vertigo, night sweats it, it was it was a lot, so I was fighting a, dense, a sense of despair and and, and what i 'd like to talk about in this panel is is, is how I w- with, with the help of of, of uh, Dr. Roseanne and his colleagues, but also with family and friends, I was able to uh, fight that sense of despair and be here today to talk about it.
0: So maybe I can fill in. Um, so when, when I first met you, uh, you wouldn't recognize me for sure. Uh, and it, I could barely interact with you. You couldn't listen to my words. Uh, you had what's called what we call encephalitis. Encephalitis is a Uh, inflammation of the brain and it can be caused by a number of infections, Uh, it also can be caused by what we call autoimmunity where the uh, uh, immune system of the body attacks the brain for reasons that we don't understand Uh, but in your case you had a a viral infection a common virus that most of us carry called herpes simplex type 1 Uh, and for some reason, we don't know why, it reactivated and travel to to your brain and uh, cause a lot of damage. Uh, we could see that damage on the MRIs that we obtained, and then we could see the consequences of that damage uh, through the way that David interacted with us, which was sometimes thrashing about, sometimes uh, almost in a coma, perpetual sleep, uh, and unable to interact uh, with his surroundings and his family in a meaningful way. It was terrifying. Um, So David was hospitalized in our neuro-intensive care unit, and to give you some perspective on what what that environment is for, I hope, most of you who have never had exposure to one, this is the most deluxe spa for the brain you could imagine. Um, You uh, have private rooms with every monitoring uh, apparatus uh, available to you to monitor brain function and all sorts of vital signs, everything inside the skull, outside of the skull. And our nurses are generally either assigned one-to-one to to a patient because there's so much to do to take care of the patient, or at a a maximum, they have two patients. And there are teams of specialists, doctors and physical therapists and occupational therapists and speech-language therapists, social workers. We have the largest possible multidisciplinary team you can imagine, all to serve these very, very sick patients, many of whom uh, don't recover, and many of whom, uh, if they do recover, have substantial disabilities um, uh, for the rest of their lives. And so when our team met David for the first time and we saw his MRI and we evaluated him, we were very concerned that he wouldn't make it. And if you compare uh, his... Images and what our examination showed, to what's published in the literature, his chances of making it were pretty slim. And what was compelling, however, was that he was he had these periods of being able to interact. So, ordinarily, patients as sick as David, it's very hard to get a sense of who they are. But David's personality shone through uh, pretty soon after our meeting him in particular ways. And and I think that reflects a drive that you had that uh, you have recalled throughout the course of your illness, even though you don't recall much of what was going on in the beginning. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that, and then I can highlight how that really helped us to sort of draw you out of yourself, that drive, that drive
3: Well, th- these were foggy times uh, for me. I don't remember too much about the first uh, month or two, uh, but I I do remember just longing to return to uh, my tribe, uh, as as you can all imagine. I've, I've got <clears throat> I now have uh, twelve grandchildren. I've helped build a dozen or so high tech companies. Uh, I, I feel like I, I have a, a wonderful network of ways to contribute to the world, and, and I wanted to get back to that. I wanted to be a full full player. I wanted to play the game again with with a, the with a tribe and, and so that I, I, I recall thinking about uh, what it would take, what I needed to do to have, have an awareness of that, what I needed to do to overcome these these uh, dysfunctions, the, these cognitive dysfunctions, and, uh, and, and get back to uh, the world I loved and how, the people uh, I loved.
2: How important was the family to
0: this transition that you were trying to get him through? So, so that's a very important point. Um, for patients with severe brain injuries, severe strokes, head trauma, for example, bad infections, bad encephalitis, we doctors, we treaters, often can't get access to who these people really are. So to use some of the language from our conference, we can't get access to their minds. And without that access, it's very difficult for us to be able to care for these individuals because if you imagine this spa for the brain, this high-tech neuroscience ICU, um, it's the ultimate in personalized care but without having access to a patient's mind, uh, we're really at a a disadvantage. So we rely on the patient circle of loved ones and family to supply for us that background. And it was particularly helpful with David because he was accompanied by a very concerned uh, son and daughter and concerned wife. Uh, It was particularly important because that drive that I mentioned and that he articulates as his uh, wish to get back to his tribe, get back to doing what he was doing, it came out in, in funky ways, so uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, a week after he emerged from his coma, he uh, was starting to reach for his uh, laptop, text on his iPhone. Uh, he, was, he was back in business, except his messages were totally uninterpretable. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, as the, as the team would come in, you, you, we don't generally read our patients' emails and we don't read their texts, but, but their families do. It was a code. Do. It was a special language for people <laughs> that it was intended to. Uh, it was coded. Okay. Well, <laughs> fooled me. Only I know the code. But uh, it was your family that, that pointed out to us what was going on, and, and they were very concerned that you were going to basically sacrifice all your businesses uh, by... Uh, either insulting people or inadvertently sending the wrong email to the wrong person, et cetera. Uh, they wanted to take away everything and not let you communicate with the outside world. And we obviously understood their concerns. Um, but what, what it did was it uh, compelled us to focus on the content of the texts and on the content of the emails and learn something about David and his um, drive and uh, get access to who he was, so that he wasn't, at this point, just somebody who was wandering about the hospital uh, halls, desperate to get out, uh, and sort of a nuisance and a safety risk, as we would say, but he was somebody who was really trying to put together his life again. And uh, for me, that was a very important experience because it, it really crystallized for me what I think is so vital to the care of patients with Brain disease, and I think it translates to all of us, not even to the disease-free, and that is once you have a sense of who this person is, you can begin to have a sense of what the trajectory is that you want for this person, a, a vision of where we wanted David to be in three weeks or three months or a year or five years. And without that, it can be very difficult to care for patients who are so sick. And David was a pretty dramatic example because his condition was so frightening to us, because the the likelihood of his survival was pretty low in the beginning, that we really focused as a team on identifying a trajectory that we thought ordinarily would have been unlikely, but because we were getting these clues of who he was and this uh, accessory data from his family, we had a vision. And um, that's, a, that's a vital lesson, one of the many, from, from your experience for us. And I think, um, from talking to you, I have a sense that you too had a vision for where you wanted to be.
3: I did. I, I, and I wanted to get there by riding the, the, IV, uh, the <laughs> IV machine down the hall. Yes.
0: Or, or, apparently. Unfortunately, <laughs> it didn't fall.
3: I don't recall that.
2: Uh, <clears throat> Talk, talk a little bit about, I mean, there must have been moments of darkness, obviously, throughout this. What, what was that hope that kept you going?
3: Yeah, it's I mean. darkness, darkness like I've never experienced before with, with, with the thing that you use to deal with darkness broken. And, and, and so it was a real challenge for me to, to try to create some sense of awareness of of. Of, of how I could find a pathway out and and I was even tiny little steps like remembering who just visited me five minutes earlier something like that it was a huge breakthrough uh, re- remembering anything about being able to walk down the hallway and, and and find what I was looking for a few hundred feet down the hall was was a big victory and I was I was looking for that I also started a practice I think I know it was facilitated by by the medical staff to to write these terribly dark statements that reflected what I was actually thinking, <clears throat> and then to write in the next sentence below that to write a very hopeful and positive statement about the same subject that that would that would change my consciousness of. of of how I was thinking about an issue. So there were many practices like this that, that pushed away darkness and, and despair and, and, and created, created hope as I, again, tried to imagine living a full life again.
2: Jonathan, I'm curious on your side as the physician and a caretaker, you've spoken off-camera about You had a plan, the team had a plan. You are not going to let this patient die. Talk to me a little bit about that.
0: Well, um, I think that the the key observation we made uh, was that there were these periods where David had some lucidity in the very beginning. The MRI looked terrible, um, and I told David I didn't want to show it. We talked about possibly showing it. I didn't want to show it. but the, and his level of arousal, which was sometimes comatose, so you, you couldn't arouse him, was sometimes punctuated by a little joke, sometimes not appropriate, but that's okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, the, the real David was there. This is being broadcast to many people in the world. (laughs) Well, when I say appropriate, I I really meant that it was uh, (laughs) out of context. But um, the little little clues we got made it clear to us that there was a lot to save despite the uh, poor prognostic signs. So that that came early.
2: Um, One of the interesting things that uh, we talked a little bit about is that the mind, in your sense, David, helped you focus on healing the
3: brain as you went through
2: this. What do, what do you mean by that?
3: Well, I'll, I'll take a, a shot at that and then have, have it the science... The, the science version of it is is not something I'll attempt, but I, I guess I sort of thought of of the the brain as the car, and maybe the mind as the driver, simplistically. When I'm in the dark in a neurotrauma ward by myself, with you know, uh, in a sort of desperate situation, and I I thought I, I knew my I knew enough about science to know that I this this had disrupted. Uh, neural networks in my brain, that, but that my mind should still be able to... That, that I didn't want my brain to use me. I wanted to use it. I wanted my, my mind to use my brain and not let my brain take me places that I, that I didn't want to go. So I uh, adopted exercises with the help of the staff to, to, to try to keep my mind intact and, and, and sp- very specifically... Uh, do things that that would help uh, these neural networks heal, and 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 I, I recall, John, you can, you know this better than I do, but I still have uh, sheets. I have test results with, with, mm-hmm. with, with cognitive function broken into 50 or 60 or 70 different categories about concentration and attentiveness and short-term memory and visual spatial recognition. And the exercises that I did were aimed at, at, at very specifically at, at each of those. And then on top of that, there were things like music. I did music therapy and other things to, to attempt to, to activate neural networks again. What, am, I in the, am I even in the right yeah,
0: well, <laughs> ballpark? <laughs> well, I, I, you, you did it, so you're in the right ballpark <laughs> for sure. Uh, so I think that's the first lesson and that David teaches us very dramatically is that uh, you, you follow, if you can get access to, I don't know if we want to call it the mind or the will uh, or the core being, the personality, whatever we call it, um, that aspect that makes us Motivated and unique and can seize control over the brain in its role of interacting with the world, controlling limbs, thinking thoughts, saying words, remembering. Um, when you get access to that, and you gave us access to that, it allows us to help you much more um, directly and precisely. So again, thinking of this concept of personalized medicine, this is We haven't talked about genomics or epigenetics yet, but this really is personalized medicine because what we're doing is tailored to David's drive. So the exercises to essentially recuperate his brain are the exercises that he wants to do, Uh, and they don't necessarily come from the textbook of exercises. They're made up in response to his drive to email or his drive to get back to his home or... Could have been his drive to cook his gourmet meals, which he doesn't do, but that kind of stuff. Uh, but we we um, we which really were we able don't. to listen to you, and I think that was that was key.
3: I, I, that's really well said, and I I guess I would add that I that I had a I, re, I recall having an attitude that I had to own this. That 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 while I was getting lots of help from family and friends and and, and doctors, that that ultimately. Success here was a choice, and, mm-hmm. that, and that, that I had to, my mind essentially had to make a choice to succeed, to find my way out, and that I had to own that, uh, and, and that it couldn't be owned by anybody else. I, and, and so the, I had a real sense of ownership, I think, to, uh, to find my way out of this. And, and, and that, that I thought of as a brain, the, the mind owning it, the, the job of fixing the brain.
2: We hear a lot about a broken healthcare system, the patient doctor relationship stressed. You two seem to have crossed a Rubicon in many different ways to make it work. Where does that come from?
0: Well, I, what I'll start with is um, I, I know you wouldn't call it this, but when you're admitted to the most luxurious brain spa in the world, you have a lot of resources. And so we have a huge team. And uh, once you develop an effective team to care for somebody, uh, it, it lightens the load and then allows so many more perspectives. So that, that's crucial. And, and I think you'll see that uh, for this subset of medicine, that that's a, uh, unusual. Uh, the other piece is that um, David made great use of different um, experts, different uh, specialties. So you had different cognitive therapists. You had one at home. You had one. You had probably multiple when you're in at Spalding Rehab Hospital. And he was always seeking out new help. That's who he was. What that meant was that when one of us ran out of ideas, even if we were uh, too uh, arrogant to admit it, David was already well ahead of us because of his drive, um, and his family was supporting him in doing this and finding somebody who could add more. So that, that's an important part of a successful patient-doctor relationship is the patient is doing all he or she can, and the doctor is doing what he or she can, but, but isn't being asked to do more because then frustration and disappointment set in.
3: you agree? I, yeah, I don't recall that, but it, it sounds like something I might do. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in teams. I like to hear people debate. Uh, issues and, and come to conclusions, I like to see the the debate. I like to hear the minority opinions. I like to amplify those opinions. I think in life, you never know where a special insight is going to come from and so I, I think the richness of debates like that and, and having different points of view is is, is really uh, really important and I re- maybe we could talk a little bit about the the, the concept of going home versus mm-hmm. Staying, I, I had a sense. I, I'm sure it was luxurious. Uh, I don't. (laughs) I don't recall uh, the the luxury the the luxury of the intellectual capacity. I I, I, the luxury of other aspects of luxury. Maybe I don't recall as much. But there there was a concept that, that the right thing for me to do. And, and I, w- I was sort of aware of of this at this point, maybe two months into the whole thing, uh, that that I it, that I might be best off going to an institution to continue cognitive therapy. And I was very respectful of the of the value of cognitive therapy that I was getting, but but my own point of view was that the richness of life, of of rejoining the game, of of, of reconnecting with my tribe as i say that that, that that there couldn't be any cognitive therapy better than that 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 was the ultimate test of whether i could really reengage so i went home i had a cognitive therapist come to my house and, and one of the luxuries that i had at home was the healing power of nature i i live at the end of a road on the ocean in a in a in maine and and it was a Every day I felt the wonderful healing power of nature walking along these cliffs in the waves and, and through the forests and, and uh, that uh, there 's a different kind of luxury than the, the room at it uh, yes. 's <laughs> well
0: it 's you know one thing that I might add to reflect on on your course and what we 've heard about this morning uh, we 've heard at different points i uh, mentioned that. There's debate over whether a particular treatment uh, is proven to help uh, largely in the space of integrated medicine and how uh, you know, something is no better than placebo. And what I want to emphasize from David's course, again, high-tech medicine at its most high-tech and its most expensive, most of what we did for you is not proven rigorously, but it occupies a space of orthodoxy that allows us to experiment, and I mean that in the best sense, to, to try what we think will help. Um, and I, I think it's unfortunate that, that n- not all of medicine, and I'm speaking also of now of integrated medicine, can occupy that space. Um, and that's something that we'll talk about. But that, you also had access to integrative approaches that were very helpful. Uh, so so that's, that's one thing I wanted to emphasize. Is David an exception?
2: rather than a rule to this disease?
0: David is an exception. Um, it's one of the reasons... So are you. I, well, thank you. We're <laughs> exceptional. <laughs> but so are you. <laughs> oh, okay, thank you. So, so that's David Well, all is, what you are. No. Well, uh, yeah, well, that's what happens when you come to our spa, and I hope you never come. <laughs> we figure out how you're exceptional. Uh, and after the spa, I come for a visit in Maine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but, David, you're still... Uh, you, so, so you're a new you, right? We've talked about this. And uh, you're not the same person you were before the injury. And one of the things we've talked about is gratitude. Mm. And you you were a grateful person before the brain infection. But your sense of gratitude is very different now, isn't it? Mm.
3: Yeah, it's, it's sort of... Gratifu- gratitude redefined. Uh, I... I'm not sure I know how to describe it, but the, but the, getting up every morning, it's I, Maybe I'll put it this way: I, I feel like every day is a bonus day. That I'm a bonus time liver uh, these days. That I, I live a bonus time life, and and so I, things that I might have, I hope I didn't take a lot for granted in in my life, in total, uh, but but today I I. Uh, I, I'm I'm much more grateful, and, and I've done some other things. There were there were things that I did in cognitive therapy. For I had never played music, and and uh, I started playing music and created a music studio at my house, and and, and just produced a 45-minute film where where with friends, some of whom were on the medical staff at Mass General, uh, we made the soundtrack for that, and it, it's a. Uh, it's a national park centennial uh film and, and 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 so I'm grateful to be have been introduced to more art and music i'm I'm just grateful for every day I'm grateful to be able to come and learn at a at a symposium like this I have a question which
2: is it clearly takes a lot of courage to speak about this issue. Why are you doing that?
3: One, one big reason, the, the, the big reason is if, if my case can help others, if there are things that are learned about the the vast mysteries of uh, of the mind and brain, which, which we're, scientifically we're learning so much so fast. There's, there's never been a time in history when we've learned more faster that can benefit people in, in neuroscience, as we've heard in some of these sessions, if there's anything that, that my case can do to help others and, and, and to inspire practices that, that help me to, to help many others. And, and I know that that's happening at, yeah. at Mass General and Harvard. I, I want to be
0: part of that. I want uh, to cheerlead go, that. Let me add a, a, another lesson just for... There's one take-home message that, that I would offer to the group and that's really uh, been enduring for me in caring for patients, is that uh, capturing that gratitude is so fundamental to recovery that it is not uncommon for my patients after they have had their stroke and they're limited now compared to what they could do before their stroke or after they've had their infection. It is not uncommon for patients to tell me that they're grateful for having had the stroke, which sounds quite extraordinary to people who haven't gone through it. I think in that gratitude is such a core component of recovery that, first of all, I want to put it in a bottle so I can give it to the people who have more difficulty finding it. But also, this is what we search for in our personalized approach to brain injury. We search for how we can help recovering patients and their families come to a place of really full and new gratitude.
3: i I'll, I'll just add to that i i in in a way that you'd never wish on people i i i a a benef- beneficiary of going into that darkness and, and finding my way out and and among other things it creates
0: a vast
3: empathy for 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 people who who it, who have uh Mental illness and, and brain injuries of any kind. I, I think it's something like 25 percent of the population has some sort of behavioral health issue. And when you've when you've been there and, and experienced that, and, you, and your sense of reality changes, uh, so that your your experience reality experiencing reality as it might be experienced uh, by by other people, it's it's uh, it enriches your life and helps you. Think about how you can create value in the world. Um,
2: Last thought, because we
3: have to move
2: on, but what I hear is a balancing of both scientific rigor and faith, hope, trust to make this all work. Is that accurate?
0: Sounds right to me. How about you? (laughs) Thank you. I have a, just a few slides to take, take the lessons that uh, David's recovery uh, taught us and begin to think more generally how we can use those lessons to help many, many, many more people. And I wanna take us back to this notion of the trajectory. We had a sense when we met David of what we wanted his trajectory to be. And so uh, that, that approach can apply, we think, to anybody. Uh, And we think of this now in terms of brain, or mind and brain health, and maximizing human potential through identifying and enhancing everybody's trajectory. But uh, one of the challenges that we face as a field around the world is how how do you integrate this concept of mind-brain health into the medical establishment? This is a challenge that we heard about uh, this morning. And um, it's one that I think we wanna conquer together as a team. Uh, So we talk about trajectories, but how does one optimize one's trajectory? During an illness? Over a lifetime. We have to figure that out. Um, There are all sorts of interventions out there. I think you heard about a dizzying number this morning. You heard about bioelectric fields. You heard about functional MRI, you heard about EEG, Certainly there are traditional medicines, there are non-traditional medicines, uh, there's meditation, there's cognitive behavioral therapy, it's all out there. But how do you know what works and what doesn't? Uh, It's very, very uh, slow to test each one. Um, But if you don't test each one and demonstrate scientifically that an intervention helps, it's very hard to um, get insurance payers to reimburse for those Interventions, And even more important than that, and that's important, is doctor's visits are short. So how do doctors decide to spend those 15 minutes of time that they have with you? Hopefully there are more time in other visits too, but, but you only have so much room uh, to work with, and our own attention spans are limited. We can't try every therapy. So that's, again, a call for developing a way of testing those therapies that we think are most promising so that we can deliver them into the mainstream. Prioritizing time with your PCPs. I'm sure many of you, when you visit your primary care physicians, you'll have your blood pressure checked or uh, your um, blood lipids, your cholesterol checked. That's kind of routine now. What should a PCP do who wants to monitor your brain, the state of your brain and the state of your mind and its trajectory so that he or she can help you decide what you need to do to change it? We don't know. The The electrical testing doesn't look like that's going to help. Is it a questionnaire? Is it um, how you feel? How do we measure how much joy you have in your life? Certainly we want to enhance joy in everyone's life. So we have developed an approach over the last five years or so uh, together to start to address this very large agenda. And the first step we've taken is to rethink who needs brain care. So David was somebody who had active disease or brain injury. That's obvious. There are many, millions of people around the world. Uh, In fact, if you take Together, all of the brain diseases, whether they be traditional psychiatric diseases or neurologic diseases like stroke and Parkinson's disease, overall, brain diseases cause more human suffering than any other group of diseases, cancer included, uh, in the world. Um, So once somebody has developed what we call a disorder, they can see a doctor. They can see a neurologist, a psychiatrist. We may not be very effective at treating these diseases, but at least... We know it's our job to do our best, and patients know that they're coming to us for that. But what do you do for people who find out they're at high risk for some brain problem, but are totally fine? They're asymptomatic. Maybe their MRI is a little abnormal. Maybe they, because of their uh, relationship to somebody who has a disease we know that uh, genetics plays a very substantial role in altering risk maybe they have a first degree relative with a psychiatric disease what do we do for these people how can we help them prevent the risk of that first occurrence of psychiatric disease there is really no place in the mel- in the healthcare system for patients like that to seek care in fact we don't often call people like that patients because in our books they don't have a disease And then finally, we have the red, the yellow, and then the green. These are individuals who have no elevated risk, as far as we can tell, but they're highly motivated to do whatever they can to protect and enhance their brain function. They wanna make sure that their trajectory, wherever they're headed in the next five, 10, 15, 20, 30 or 60 years, is maximized so that they can be as happy and as joyful and as uh, fulfilled as possible. Well, certainly within our healthcare system, individuals like that are not considered patients, and within the healthcare system, there is no place for these uh, individuals to receive care. So that's our vision, is to begin to think of the brain, the mind and the brain, as a focus for care, regardless of whether you fall into the red, the yellow, or the green category. Another really vital lesson from Dave's experience is that it takes a team. And that team traditionally is defined rather narrowly. It's defined by doctors and nurses, physical and occupational therapists, cognitive therapists. Um, We're beginning to define researchers as part of the team. We now have researchers going rapidly back and forth between the bedside or the clinic offices and the lab so that they can translate discoveries more quickly or that they can use observations in patients and bring them to the lab. Um, But often we don't think of caregivers or certainly experts in integrative medicine as part of that team. And what's very clear to all of us now is, first of all, that integrative medicine shares uh, equally in the uh, possibility of efficacy with traditional medicine, but even more importantly, I would say, that caregivers, family members, loved ones, play a vital role in recovery and health. So that's how we want to see the team grow. And that's the kind of approach we think will support brain health over the lifespan. And it's the focus of this new initiative that Deepak alluded to that we've started in conjunction with Deepak and Rudy and I at Mass General and Deepak, is coming in to join us uh, to develop this model, and we look forward to uh, telling you more about it in the years to come. Thank you.